welcome to church, everybody. An incredible time of worship as we've gathered here together, uh, scattered as we are. It is good to be joined here uh, virtually as we have been for the last little bit. Uh, Kevin did a wonderful job kicking off our series last week as we've stepped into this series we've entitled Transformed. We're going to look at the life of David, a man who was called a man after God's own heart, and yet we're looking at him during this time of incredible downfall, incredible failure, and really sitting back and going, all right, what does it look like uh, for us to walk this out? Kevin opened that topic up last week. And so what we're gonna do today is I'd like to start with an experience I had a little bit ago. I've actually talked about it before from the pulpit. I was doing one of my least favorite things, which was cleaning out the garage. And this will kind of tie into where we're going a little bit today. I sat there, and I don't know about you guys, but what happens is the garage kind of becomes the dumping place. It eventually starts to drive me crazy. And then, you know, whether it's 57 degrees or 107 degrees, I go tackle the garage. And so a couple of years ago, I was out there, and uh, I opened up a box that ended up being a time capsule. You guys ever, ever had that experience where you're sitting back and you're going, okay, what's in this box? And you got bunches of them, and it's like old tax returns. And, and this particular box ended up being journals. It was some of my old journals, so I read back high school, college, early marriage, which was a real tumultuous time for me. I I read the words of what I consider to be a very foolish young man and went, wow, how much I've learned since those times. Uh, Beyond that, I found a couple more, and these journals didn't belong to me, they belonged to my wife. And so I opened one of them and started to read. Now, caution at this point. If you know your marriage can't sustain you reading your spouse's journal, don't do that, okay? Mine, mine can, and Jamie and I are pretty transparent in that area, so this was not an off-limits task. And I sat there, and I started to just read. And I read through listening to, it was kind of a late high school journal, so I, I listened as my wife uh, reasoned through life. I found some sermon notes, actually from, from here, from Scottsdale Bible, from sermons that Daryl had preached uh, back in that time. And I listened as my wife journaled her heart And I listened to how she was applying God's word as a 17-year-old woman to her life. I sat there and listened to how relationships that were going on in her life at the time, how she was constantly seeking God for what was the best move and what was his will. I got to sit and listen as she kind of wrestled through one of the biggest decisions she'd had to make up to that point, which was where to go to college. And for her, that was, had some big implications as she was an incredible, still is an incredible athlete and where she was gonna go was gonna really change the way that she kind of thought about those things. You know, it, it really struck me in that hot garage that day that this woman who I had known for about 10 years at that point and been, you know, had, had known her in, in marriage. I mean, it was this, like, we know each other pretty well at this point, how I started to see her differently in current circumstances because of what I had heard and seen developed through the years with her and the Lord's relationship. I really got to see her again for the very first time and I felt myself having compassion and empathy. Some things hadn't changed, some things had. I often sit back and I kind of wish that I could see the journals of great Bible characters. You know, some of the great ones, to sit back and to ask Adam and Eve in the midst of just having committed original sin, what what were you feeling, what was that like? Uh, Abraham, What was it like to sit there with Isaac and and really be walking down a road that was challenging, but you felt like the Lord had really called you to? What were you thinking right before the ram showed up? What about as we sit back and we think about a great woman like Esther, one of the great gotcha moments as she sits there and, and Haman has been exposed and she goes, wow, what was that like? Or Joshua, 
all those early mornings with the Lord, battle planning and sitting there in his presence, kind of navigating Israel through what they would do. We get to do something very similar to that today. We're gonna step out of 2 Samuel, which is primarily where this series is spending its time in our word, and we're gonna step into Psalm 51. You heard a little bit of it read through worship, and we're gonna look at what really is a personal, personal journal of David. He was a creative, so he was a music guy, and so I'm always marveled at my friends, many of whom you've seen on stage today, uh, as when they pour their hearts out, it finds its way into song. And I'm just baffled by that because I'm the least musical person you know, but this is David, a creative, a musician, pouring out his heart to God. It's the personal journal of the great king, and I'm excited to spend some time in it today. So let's just bow our heads and prepare our hearts maybe one more time before we dive into this. God, as we go today to hear really what is a cry of repentance uh, filled with lament and brokenness over his sin, the great King David, the man who you've said, this is a man after my own heart, uh, finds himself in a desperate time. Would you prepare us, O Lord, as we walk through this? We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, last week, Kevin kicked off our series with this week of really, it's kind of recognition or conviction he talked about that moment where Nathan confronts David and, and really hits him with a phrase we'll tie back into a little bit later today, this great prophetic metaphor that lands in this moment where he says this, you are that man. David had this strong emotion, almost this compulsion to move against this man in this metaphor that Nathan, the prophet, had laid out and then finds out you're that guy. And in the midst of this incredible exposure, being completely transparent, David is now wrecked and broken. It was a sermon on conviction where Kevin challenged us so beautifully to do something incredible, to search our hearts. Not to sit back and to say this, oh, hey God, I've kind of got the goodwill approach. I don't need these things anymore. But to come in with a completely different heart condition to say, Lord, you search me and whatever you find, we will get rid of together, you and me. This week, I want to pick up from there and kind of walk it a little bit further down the field as we find David now wrecked by that conviction from Nathan, but really with the question of kind of where does he go next? I think where we go next has to have a question answered. It's the question of how do we get here? You know, Kevin kind of told you the story of the sin with Bathsheba, the death and the murder of Uriah, and then Nathan, but what were the heart conditions that led David here? Because those are so important it's those heart conditions that need to be deconstructed, something kind of for us to learn from today. Uh, David had unquestionable power and authority. At this point in his life, he's one of the most powerful men on the planet. Wealth and riches, incredible victories in battle have expanded the territory of the kingdom of Israel pretty much to its largest point that it would ever see. In the midst of that, what you actually see as the hero of the story was last week when Nathan steps in to correct a king, something that never happened. You know, kings didn't have to be real practiced in humility because effectively they were never wrong. Now, of course they were wrong, but nobody ever had the guts to tell them and it would cost you your life if you did. You see, David's coming to this moment where he's realizing his life run on his power and authority has left him completely devastated, completely broken, and in this place where he has no idea what to do next other than to do what 99% of the kings would never have done. And that is stop running a life on his power and authority and turn to a higher power and authority. So as we move through this setup, let's dive into Psalm 51 and maybe we can see David 
and ourselves again for the first time. Here, as we look at this, this is really great. First verse, let's take a look at it here on the screen. Psalm 51 starts with what we heard earlier. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, we could spend a month in Psalm 51. And so what we're gonna do today is I'll read it and we'll break it down and I'm gonna hit some highlights. Some of these verses are so theologically rich. Like I said, we could spend an entire week on one and yet I wanna move us through this so we can see the full picture of what David's heart is reflecting. This first little section here is so great. When David comes to God and he comes to him asking for something, which is mercy, he doesn't come saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And oh, by the way, remember, I'm a great king. I'm the one who slayed Goliath. I've built the walls and expanded the kingdom. He doesn't come declaring him. He comes declaring the Lord's character according not to my, but to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Do we ever do this? Do you ever sit down and come just completely empty-handed to God? Because most of us tend to, and myself included at times, we tend to kind of have a rewards system mentality with the Lord. We come in and we think to ourselves, hey, you know what? Uh, as long as I'm doing good, me and God can be close. But when I'm doing bad, me and him need to be apart. It's the garden all over again. It's Adam and Eve, once they've sinned, going, I'm gonna cover myself and I'm gonna hide from the Lord even though the Lord has come to walk in the cool of the day in the garden to be in relationship. You see, what David's doing here completely goes against our modern mentality of how our relationships with God can work at times because it makes God's mercy and grace, if it's based on a reward system, so hard to reconcile. But what David is doing here is he's not only reconciling it, he is the one coming, declaring it as the foundation of what he is coming upon to the Lord. His foundation is not built on his accomplishments, his right standing, or his character. It is built, his approach to the Lord is built entirely on God's character, his steadfast love, and his abundant mercy. You see this over and over again in the New Testament where God's kids come in and they do this. Lord, because you are this way, I approach you. You see, the reality for David at this point is he knows he deserves death. He all but declared it to Nathan. Who is this man? You go find him. I will pay it out tenfold. And he says, you're this man. And in that moment, David realized he has indicted himself and it should cost him his life because he killed Uriah. But instead, he comes to the Lord declaring the Lord's character back to him and says, I am looking for your grace and mercy. Even though I don't deserve it, I deserve death, will you give me love and mercy? And when you do so, will you do so with steadfastness and abundance? Here's a little challenging question for us today. When things are at their worst in your life, when you've committed the egregious sins or when you're so bathed in shame and guilt, do you run to the Lord or away? Are you still in the Adam and Eve experience of running and trying to cover up your sin? Or are we in the posture of David, a man after God's own heart? David wasn't perfect, but he was persistent. And when he presses in to difficult times, he comes to the Lord, not away from him. It's something for all of us to let marinate a little bit as we think about the heart of great King David today. 
Now, this next verse is, uh, these next couple of verses as we read them, I want to kind of qualify as we go because there's a lot in them. We're going to focus on verse three here. It says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. But verse four, David says this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Time out. Against you and you only? What about, Dave? what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Have you not sinned against them too, David? Here's the qualification, because particularly in our culture today, it is so easy for our culture to see men of power and to sort of make the accusation they get away with whatever they want. I want you to hear loud and clear, that is not what David is saying. David is talking to God about him and God. When he sits back and says, against you, you only have I sinned, what he's saying is, Lord, you're not guilty of anything. The guilt is upon me, which is why he follows it up with, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So the clarification there is super important because when I first read that verse, I go, this is really off kilter. But contextualize as to who he's talking to, that's where it sits. Number five says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Side note, David believes he was sinful from birth. He believes that original sin has tainted him as well and that he was completely capable of sinning from the time he was young. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in your secret place. What I wanna focus on up here is that verse three because it's really the heart posture that David is needing right now. David is sitting back and saying, for I know my transgressions. Again, David's not sitting back saying, hey, can we just overlook this? He's saying, my sin is ever before me. Lord, I'm completely wrecked in the midst of what's going on here. This is really important because for David, he had been running for so long on his own power and authority. And what he's doing in the midst of this moment is saying, Lord, I'm exhausted. My sin is ever before me. Like I can't look anywhere and not be burdened by what's happening in front of me because I'm so sinful. This is repentance. I want you to look at this. This is what true repentance really looks like. It's when we turn from our own power and authority and we turn back to God's. It's that moment where you have this recognition that your life, as good as you thought you were at it, all of a sudden leaves you completely devastated. And David has been sitting there trying to cover up his stuff for so long, and he finally says, enough's enough. Lord, I can't do this anymore. And he's going, this is before me. I just want you. You see, I want rest again because this is exhausting. I'll give you an example from my own life. It's a pretty painful memory, but it's one that has become so instructive, I can't not share it in the midst of what we're learning today. Uh, it was a little over 11 years ago. It was right when things had really come apart for Jamie and I, two and a half years into marriage. Many of you know the story. So I'd recently come to grips, like maybe even that day, with the fact that I was wrestling with addiction to alcohol. In addition to that, in the 24 hours or 72 hours that had previously kind of uh, led up to that moment, I'd cheated on my wife. And I now sat there in the midst of this life that had completely come unraveled and completely devastated me. And we sat on the couch of some dear friends that night. It had been an exhausting day. 
And sitting there with so little to offer, and my wife in tears, me devastated, her devastated, I had a very dear friend who said something that was so spot on, but so painful. And it still to this day is a warning cloud that sits in my life. He looked at me and he said this. He said, Rustin, I just want you to remember that at your best without God, with all of your communication skills, with all of your humor, with all of the way that you navigate relationships in the business world and things that you think are so valuable, I want you to remember that at your very best without God, all you were able to accomplish was to become an adulterous alcoholic. In the midst of that moment, something occurred to me. Under my own power and authority, my best had left my life in ruin. And I'd tried for years to patch it up and put it together. Ladies and gentlemen, David is in the midst of that exact same moment unbridled power and authority. And at his very best, he had sat there and tried to manipulate. And well, I'll send Uriah home. Maybe that'll fix it. Now, you know what? Now I'll murder him. Well, now I'll make her my wife. Well, now I'll, and finally Nathan levels David with this powerful revelation, prophetic in nature and goes, you can't do it anymore. And David is sitting there in the midst of the moment that with all your wealth, with a giant kingdom, man after God's own heart and all your success, giant slayer, you are sitting here and at your very best the most you were ever able to accomplish was to become an adulterous murderer and he's so devastated by that that he just sits there and all he can say is I see my sin it's ever before me in the midst of those moments true repentance has us doing what David did it's devastating, folks. I've been in this moment and I've sat there and gone, at my very best, I am a wreck. Lord, will you take me from here and will you walk me into rest? I'm just so tired. I can't do it anymore. David moves from this confession and this contrite heart and he says something powerful in verses seven through 12, which is really the meat of where I want us to sit today. Let's take a look at him here on the screen. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then what we know so well, because we sang these words for years, 10, 11, and 12, say, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know what I love about the way that David phrases this is not only is he genuinely repentant, but I wanna show you something today that is one of my favorite little things to differentiate between. It's the difference between, Lord, will you just change my circumstances and Lord, will you change my heart? Hey, Lord, this really hurts. Will you give me relief? And hey, Lord, I don't care how much it hurts. I want the work to be done. You see, David's not crying out for circumstantial change in verses seven through 12. What David's crying out for is, I need you not to change my circumstances, but I need you to change my heart, which is producing the circumstances. It's where we spent all last num uh, summer on the Sermon on the Mount, talking about how heart change is what's required. 
You know, last week, Kevin talked about the reality of searching our hearts. This is the application of a heart searched by the Lord. It's that when he finds something, we sit back, and here's what David isn't saying. Oh, God, make the pain stop. David is repentant with a heart that's saying this, keep me in the fire until the work is done. Church, let me ask all of us today, do you have the guts to pray that prayer? In the midst of your painful circumstances, do you have the guts to sit back and to say, Lord, I don't want to go back to where I was alone on my own power and authority, but Lord, I have the guts to cry out to you, keep me in the refining fire until you know the work is done because I need the work more than I need the pain to stop. It is a fearless prayer with the Lord, one that is completely reliant on him. For me, this is my marriage. Marriage is hard. Many of you know that. It's those times where we sit back and the, the Lord's call to me, and I echo this anytime I talk about marriage, the Lord's call to me is to be as Jesus was to his bride, I should be to mine, giving everything up for her. Sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. And once you've sacrificed that much, sacrifice some more. Giving up everything to the benefit of another is the picture of marriage. What does that look like? To be honest, at times, I feel this. I feel what we're in today. And, and to be super honest, and this will resonate with just about everybody in the room, I just, I wanna quit. Not on my marriage. I don't wanna get divorced, that's not it. I mean, there's times where I look at God and he's trying to change me to look more like him so that I can reflect more of him to her. And in those moments, what I wanna do is I just wanna say, hey God, can we just stop the fire? Can we stop the changing? Can we just, huh, can we just stay stuck for a minute? And yet the Lord loves all of us too much to keep us stuck. David's gonna cry out in verse 12, something beautiful that I want us to continue to focus on. Next up, David has this incredible deal where he says, he's asking the Lord to hear joy and gladness again. Lord, will you give me joy and gladness again? In the midst of the circumstances I'm in, will you give me joy and gladness? But what does joy and gladness look like? Listen to how David describes joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let me tell you what that verse eight doesn't say. Hey, Lord, heal the broken bones. Fix the legs that are broken. Lord, take these shattered, broken legs that I can't walk on anymore and fix them. He doesn't say that. He goes, leave them broken and let them cry out in joy. Why? Because when my legs were good on my own power and authority, look at the mess I created. The fact that you've broken the legs and I'm now sitting here paralyzed in my sin is good news and I want to cry out with joy and gladness because work is being done. He's not asking for the circumstances to change. He's saying, give me a heart that can cry out celebration, worship, and joy in the midst of these broken bones. Church, do we hear that today? Anybody feeling disrupted in our current culture? <laughs> Anybody sitting back and going, all my comforts, all my normals, all my things that I used to rest upon have been destroyed. They're gone. Lord, in the midst of all of this brokenness that I'm experiencing, 
rather than fixing my circumstances, because those are outside of most of our control right now, will you just seat me in the midst of this and will you let me cry out with a joyful heart in the midst of the broken bones? Because we get just a few steps further down the road and we go, you know what, Lord, it is better that you continue to work than that I go back to where I was. Has this whole COVID culture, COVID season done anything good in somebody's heart? You bet. It's forced some of us to slow down. It's forced some of us to be with our families in ways that we hadn't in a long time. And to be honest, at the paces we were running, we were unlikely to again. It has forced patience, kindness, empathy, and love in areas where we didn't even know we needed them. Do we have the guts to say, rather than just fix the circumstances, will you make me peaceful in the midst of the circumstances I'm in? Because that's the difference between a heart that says I want relief and one that cries out for restoration. David declares the desires of the Lord back to the Lord. He's so good at this. He says, what does God want? He wants a clean heart. He wants a right spirit. He asked the Lord not to cast him away and not ha to have the Holy Spirit taken from him. What's he, what's he referencing there? He sits back, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Who's he remembering? Saul. He remembers Saul. Saul didn't repent. Saul continued to drive further and further into his own power and his own will and his own authority, tried to kill David. David was around for all of that and he watched the Lord remove his spirit from Saul and then watched Saul try to lead without the spirit and it was a debacle. David's sin is grievous, arguably worse than Saul's and what David's sitting back right now and doing is going, I know what I deserve. It's that you would remove your spirit from me and I would be on my own trying to do a job that I'm completely unqualified for without you. And he's going, Lord, please don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I long for, which is more of you and I don't care what it costs. And this last part, gosh, I just love this. It's a, it's a prayer that I've echoed so many times this week because this was new for me as I studied. Keep me willing. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, of your saving me from my sin and uphold me with a willing spirit. What's David saying? I will quit. If you leave this to me, I won't make it. I will quit, it will be too painful and in the midst of the pain, I will cry out and say, enough's enough, I don't wanna do this anymore. Forget it. Leave me here, stuck and broken. Just like I, I say in my marriage sometimes, Lord, I don't think I'm strong enough to go where you're taking me. I don't know if I can do this. And the Lord is so good. He answers the prayer that sometimes we haven't even prayed. It's the prayer of David. Keep me willing, even when I don't want to. It's that old cheesy Christian poem, The Footprints in the Sand. The guy looks at God, hey, look at these footprints where we walk together, but then there's only one set of footprints. Why did you abandon me? Lord goes, oh no, I didn't abandon you. That's where I carried you because you couldn't walk anymore. Do we have the guts to sit back and say, Lord, take me somewhere where I know I'll fail, where I know I won't make it, where I know that my legs will be broken and crumbled and I am praying in those moments, God, will you keep me willing? Where my willingness fails, will you scoop me up and just keep me moving down the field? I wanna keep falling forward even when my strength fails. David goes from there into verse 13. Let's take a look at that. 
says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And then 16 and 17 is where we're gonna focus. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Here's why this is so important for us. David makes this huge restoration ask to the Lord. Like as we walked through it, it's just beautiful. And then he comes back and starts to cast a vision, God's vision for his life back over his life. This is what I was made to do, to turn transgressors back to you. Sinners will return to you. Lord, deliver me. He's casting a vision for his own life. Sometimes, church, we need to be our best preachers, declaring God's vision and God's hope and his promises over our life because sometimes Sunday services just don't come around often enough in our tough weeks. Sometimes you need a daily preacher and the mirror might be your preacher when you declare God's word and God's truth back over your life. Hey, I'm a sinner, I'm a mess, but Lord, move me forward. I wanna continue to serve you. But David qualifies it with 16 and 17. David's saying this. He's sitting back and saying, you wouldn't delight in sacrifices right now. Why? Because my heart's a mess. Because if I were to sacrifice right now, here's what it would look like. It would be out of compulsion. It would be out of like this guilt rather than out of a cheerful heart, which is what the Lord asks us to give out of. I would be serving you out of obligation. And sacrifice doesn't replace obedience. David knows this because guess what? Samuel, who anointed him, says this in 1 Samuel. It's 1 Samuel 15, 22. Let's take a look at it. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. There is a lot of truth in this one little passage here. Just these two verses have so much to teach us about getting the cart before the horse, about getting service and works and good deeds ahead of an obedient heart. This message is for those of us who struggle with, I haven't done really well, I better go serve. You know what? I've been a little asleep at the wheel, I should probably lead a small group. If you're doing it out of compulsion or out of obligation, what David is reflecting here so beautifully is it's not gonna solve your problem. Take time to go fall in love with the Lord again and then let that service, let that ministry not come out of compulsion but out of an overflowing love for the Lord. There's times where you sit back and you go, you know what, it's the right thing to do, that's fine. But if a majority of your Christian experience is, okay, whether it's your time, your talent, or your treasure, if what you're giving out of is completely obligatory, recognize what he's saying today. At one point in Isaiah, God looks at Israel and calls their sacrifices worthless and tells them to stop giving it. What does God's desire for giving look like, whether it's talent, time, or treasure? 2 Corinthians 9.7, let's look at that real quick. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. What's that mean? It means that the 10% rule of the Old Testament, that's not the standard. It's what you and the Lord decide to give in your heart with him. That's why we say giving's between you and the Lord. 
okay? You give, you don't give, that's between you and him, and someday you get to stand before him and go, you gave me this, what did I steward it? How did I steward it? What did I give back? But this is the most important qualifier. Not reluctantly, under compulsion, but for God loves a cheerful giver. What we give has to be done with a cheerful heart. And David goes, listen, I'm in the broken bone stage. I'm asking for joy. I'm asking for gladness. But at this point, I can't really make that happen. Are we willing to heed that truth for our lives today? Are we willing to hear the Lord crying out for us? Here's the reality that David closes with. And I think it's really good because it really fights just another layer of kind of our Western mindset about how we operate with the Lord. This is verses 18 and 19, and it says this. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here's what David recognizes. And this is a tough one for us to wrap our brains around because our Western modern mindset is very individualistic. And it, I don't mean that just in like the, we only think about ourselves. But when it comes to the Lord, very often we think about how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I obedient? Is this working well? What David's recognizing is historically accurate, which is speed of the leader, speed of the team. Like if you go forward and you look at what happens to Israel after Solomon, it's kingdom divided and you've just got constant ping-ponging back between wretched and wholesome kings. And whatever the king was doing, the nation followed. David is echoing a cry for Zion, okay, which is a word for God's people, okay, the Hebrew people. He's crying out for Zion and is asking him to do good. Why? Because he's a king, because he's the one that if he goes sideways, it can go sideways, He's recognizing he's not only a member, but a leader in the midst of the community and is on behalf as one of its members, prominent as he may be, saying, do not punish Jerusalem for what I've done. Please hold me accountable, but don't punish them. It's a wonderful Christ-like moment where he's saying, listen, pour it out on me, okay? He's a broken picture of it as all typology is. He's a broken picture, but it's a Christ-like moment where he's saying, do not punish them, pour it out on me. And he's right. He's guilty. Christ was not. He's always the perfect, Christ is always the perfect fulfillment of all of those pictures that came before him. The reality that I want us to, to press in a little bit today is when we go to God, do we recognize that we are not only a member of the body, but a member in the body? That when we sit back and pray, it can't always just be me and God, me and God, me and God. There are times, and I would argue right now, the church is in desperate need of this. There are times we have to recognize and press into, Lord, will you be with us? We have to think far more corporately at times about what it is that our relationship is doing and be willing to intercede on behalf of the bride of Christ. To step back and to say, Lord, me and you have sorted some of our stuff out now, but Lord, will you be with your people? Because to be honest, it is not getting easier to be a Christian. We are feeling a cultural push in the opposite direction. And as the dark gets darker, the light gets lighter. But I am asking today, Scottsdale Bible Church and all of those listening from other churches around the world, can we rise up together and reflect a prayer like David's, not just being willing to say, Lord, will you be with us? But Lord, we recognize that we're failing at times. 
Lord, will you forgive us for the places where we're falling so far short of your beautiful character and your ministry around the world? Lord, will you continue to teach us and instruct us, 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 not just me, me, me. It's a beautiful close to this beautiful, beautiful prayer. Here's our conclusion for today. We're gonna walk out what Kevin asked us to do next, last week, which is to search our hearts. And like I said, it's not just this place where we come in and we say, hey, Lord, I don't really need this anymore. You can take it. It's this place where we step in and go, Lord, you get the first fruits. Lord, whatever it is, come and take what you think doesn't fit. I sacrifice that to you and I'll continue to pursue joy and gladness. It was a courageous ask last week to ask the Lord to search our hearts. But our challenge for this week is to reflect the next level once we've found ourselves in these recognition moments where we go, oh my gosh, I'm that man. At my very best, this is who I am. This is the type of man or woman of God I'm at without the Lord in this area of my life. What we're doing this week is we're turning and we're going now. I wanna move in a new direction. And next week, we'll start to talk about what it looks like to walk that new direction out. Today, we're just talking about I'm turning back to God, away from my power and authority, and coming back to the master who I know if I submit my life to him, I'll be in a new place. It's that place where we cry out, Lord, I come and I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. It's the beautiful moment where we find that we were made to be submitted to a king and he's the king who will have a best life plan for us. Church, we're gonna go to a time of response right now. We're gonna sing a beautiful song that just absolutely fits with where we are today. And I just ask, let me, can I just pray over you right now? Wherever you are, with your family, watching this online, alone, together, whatever your season of life has you in. Can I just pray over you as we prepare our hearts one more time today to go together in worship and cry out really the words and the heart condition of this beautiful song, this man after God's own heart, who we get a chance to see for the first time again. Lord, we come to you today and we recognize this desperate need that we have for you we do, we, we, we get tired of these places where we sit there and we start to panic because we just can't manipulate our circumstances anymore. Our power and our authority, Lord, they've, they've run us completely aground in these spots. And so Lord, as we sit there, we come to you exhausted from living life on our own circumstances in the midst of our own realities. And we come and we bow before you for rest. We recognize that without you, Lord, we fall apart, that you're the one who guides our hearts. Lord, we need you, oh, do we need you. Every hour of every day, do we need you. Lord, we just pray that as we continue to have the heinousness of our sin exposed to us, that in those moments, we'd not run from you, but to you, into your loving arms. Lord, this is our prayer today as we prepare our hearts to come to you, in some cases already having been searched, but finding something that is so startling, so abrupt that our immediate flinch in our flesh is to run away. And yet what we ask today is that would you instill in all of us the courageous heart of David that in the midst of our fear presses back into the fear of being judged and finds you loving, finds you compassionate, 
with open arms willing to receive us as sinners because of your good news, the gospel. We pray this in your name today, amen.